Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's Word. Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. And as uh, Taylor was giving a little bit of that rundown of some of my history of First Van, one thing he probably doesn't know and didn't mention was that uh, I can remember when this building did not exist and we were meeting over in the fellowship hall and it was during a missions conference and a little man from South Africa stood up named Stephen Alford. And he preached a sermon that was the first time I began to consider a full-time call to ministry. So in many ways, I'm indebted to First Evangelical Church and obviously above all because you take care of my mama, who I can assure you is the easiest one in our family to love. Some of you should say amen right now. Okay, you know me. So my wife and I did live up in the area north of Seattle in a town called Snohomish for about seven years, pastoring a church there. And if any of you have lived there or even heard the rumors, it is true that it is cloudy most of the year with substantial amounts of rain, even though most of that rain comes down in small portions just day after day after day. And where we lived in specifically was called by the meteorologist of the area, the convergence zone. And that meant that the weather as it came off the coast would come down the mountains from Canada and up from the Olympic mountains to the south, and it would all come right through Everett and Snohomish where we lived. So let's say that we had a lot of precip precipitation and a lot of cloudy days. But what was always fascinating to me is I could jump on Highway 9, which is just near our house, and I could begin to head over the Cascade Mountains and go through a little town called Leavenworth, a Bavarian village there in the mountains, and then we would come out on the other side in Wenatchee, and when we were on that side of the Cascade Mountains, everything changed. They tell us that what would happen is those storms would come in from the coast. They would dump all their rain in the Seattle area and then in the mountains. And then on the other side of the mountains, it was a fairly, fairly arid climate. It was beautiful blue skies. They had the world's largest production of apples in that area. And just south of there was the vineyards because of the arid climate just worked well for producing those crops. And it amazed me the contrast 
within about an hour to and a half drive from east, from west to east, the contrast in climate, foliage, and everything else, even the political climate changed. See, it's amazing when we think about our world is full of contrasts. We use language all the time that speaks of contrast, good, bad, light, dark. And we all have contrasts that we can think in our own lives of those times that were blessing and those times that were struggle. And in the Scriptures, there are always contrasts that are laid forth, and we're going to see one this morning in our passage in Ephesians chapter 2. We read from it earlier, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me in Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 10. And as we walk through these verses, we're going to see a contrast that is set off by a very simple phrase. That very simple phrase is, but God. And everything before that but God is life outside of Christ, life before you meet Christ. For some of you, it may be where you live today. For others, it is the life that you look back on before you met Christ. But then God did something, but God intervenes. And we have on the other side of that what it looks like to have life in Christ. It is the very thing that we celebrated in baptism, that we were baptized in the likeness of His death, we are raised into newness of life. And so we're going to track that series of thought as we go through this text. And if I could give you one way to remember it, it is this, moving from the graveyard to the gallery. Moving from the graveyard to the gallery. We'll flesh that out as we go, but the graveyard, as you well know, is a place of death. This past Thanksgiving, we celebrated with our family over on the Tennessee River, and my eldest son and I went to Shiloh, and we toured the graves. They are markers of death, of finality. But there's something on the other side of those who trust in Christ. And in this passage, I'm going to call it the gallery of God's masterpiece. And we now live, if you have trusted Christ, not in the graveyard of death, but in the gallery of God's masterpiece. Let's look how Paul lays this out, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. He starts with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, first of all, helped pay for my Dallas Seminary education. So I have to throw in one Greek word. The Greek word for dead in this text means no longer living. Is that well worth your money? It means dead. There's no great transition between the two languages. It means that is, that is without life. And for those that are without life, we're going to see three characteristics in this text. That is that they are deceived, they are depraved, and they are doomed. Now, before you jump too much on those words and begin to think this is going to be nothing but a Helen Brim-style uh, Brim message, it, it is in many ways setting us up for the beauty of what comes later in the text. But the first thing we see in this text is that those that are without Christ are deceived. Look at what it says. In whom you once walked, in which you once walked, that is your trespasses and sins. Why did you walk in those? Because you were following the course of this world. Who sets the course of this world? 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In today's culture, you have often heard the terminology misinformation. Could we just simply say misinformation is deception? But here's the struggle that we have in our culture today. Who calls what information and misinformation? Because your worldview will dictate oftentimes what someone calls misinformation or correct information. Maybe it's your political leanings. Maybe it's the way you were raised. In fact, there's been a lot of studies done recently on this whole idea of misinformation. And let me say at the outset, I think it's a battle for truth. The only question is, from where will the truth come? In a couple of these studies, one was done by the New York Times, and they actually asked a number of different, mostly specialists in the area of sociology, do you have any hopeful outcome during this age of misinformation or disinformation, even when you include things like AI? What do you see as the outcome of this? What was surprising in their number one theme was this. Belonging is stronger than facts. Belonging is stronger than facts. And they said people will highlight their subgroup within the culture, and it is more, more important for them to be a part of how they've identified with that subgroup than it is actually the facts that are presented. And therefore, misinformation can be developed in order to interpret it in such a way that you can belong in that group. The Pew Research and Elon University did a similar study, and they again asked, what do you see as the outcome? Where is this headed? And these secular leaders and journalists said this, the number one theme is the information environment will not improve. The reason they gave for it is the problem is human nature. Now, these are not biblical scholars. These are secularists, many of whom would probably say man is born good. And yet, as they have studied what has happened in the world's history and in where we are today, their conclusion is that the problem is humanity, and it is, in fact, depraved or at least deceived. Now, here's a problem with deception. When you are deceived, you do not know that you are deceived, Right? the very nature of deception. I mean, if you know you're being deceived and still cling to it, you're clinging to a known falsehood. So there's a problem in our culture today because we can say that misinformation is leading to deception, but the question is how do you define what is true and what is not? What is right information and what is not? Have you found that people can use the same set of data and come to different conclusions? Well, I want to suggest to you that when it comes to the great questions of our culture, when it comes to the big questions of life, there's only three things that will help moor you in what is truth and what is deception. And the first of those is the Word of God, the Word of God. I am so thankful that God gave us His Word for the very purpose that as we live our life in varying cultural expressions, that we have the Word of God to cling to to give God's plumb line of what truth is. Without it, you are in a wash in a generation that knows nothing of truth, but only of personalities and opinions. The second thing He has given us is His Spirit. Now, those things work hand in hand. He has given us His Word, and He has given us His Spirit. His Spirit 
Jesus says, came that He may teach you. The Spirit of God instructs our minds and our hearts for those who are found in Christ as to what is true and what is not. And the danger is that if you are not a follower of Jesus, you have not received the Spirit, again, what is the Spirit that you're listening to? Is it one of truth or one of error? The final thing He gives us to discern truth is His Word, His Spirit, and His people. I had a seminary professor that once said, every cult has gotten its start from someone who did theology on their own or claimed to have had a personal revelation from God that trumps Scripture. The danger is any one of us could fall into a trap of interpreting the Word in the way that we want to hear it interpreted. But when we have a community of faith, God's people, where we are interacting around God's Word, it allows us to be corrected and instructed in the truth of God's Word. So God's people, God's Spirit, and God's Word help keep us from deception. But we need to remember something else is very important in this text, and that is the deception is the work of demonic and evil powers. That's what he says here. What are they doing in the course of this world? They are following the prince of the air. He's going to talk about this later in the book of Ephesians, where he talks about our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual powers and principalities, if I could say that word. So here he is, the one that is behind it all, deceiving mankind. He has not changed from the Garden of Eden. When he approached the first residents of the garden, the ones that God created, and he says, did God really say? And deception leads to destruction. And yet we can be very callous to that or very unthinking about it. But, you know, if you look at our world situation, I don't know how you can but understand there's got to be demonic powers. Think about the violence that occurs in our culture. Whether you go all the way back to something like uh, the Holocaust and how could those horrendous things have happened to modern-day situations that are going on in Israel and with Hamas, to our schoolrooms where our children get shot in the schools. How can such unspeakable violence exist lest there be one that is influencing it? How about confusion over simple things as sexuality and gender? that is wreaking havoc on people's lives and in home lives and in the model of which God has set up in creation. And yet, our culture is 100% buying into all of it. And yet, the Spirit of God and the Word of God calls us back and asks us the question, as followers of Jesus, are you believing the falsehoods of this world? Or are you listening obeying and walking in the eternal truths of God. But not only are they deceived, people that are without Christ are depraved. Now, before you jump too strongly on that word, I happen to love the word depravity, depraved. You know, when my kids were very small, they would do things, and I would just look at my wife, and I said, that's because they're depraved. Now, I've set aside a counseling fund for them. Now that they're young adults, they can tap into that as needed. But Depravity doesn't necessarily mean you are the worst you could possibly be. It simply means that at your very core, there is something that is, if I could use the term dysfunctional, 
It is something that cannot comprehend and understand and submit to the truths of God. Because of that, you see what's going on in verse 3. He talks about among whom, that is the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, or it could be translated like all of mankind. Here in this text, we see very clearly that what he is speaking about is this idea of depravity being driven by our own self-interests, by those things that please us, no matter whether they please God, no matter whether they hurt others. If it pleases us, then we do it. So our culture says things, you do you. There's a song many years ago, this will date you if you know this song, You Light Up My Life. Some of you are young enough to have no idea what that song means, but let me, let me read one line from it. In that song it said, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. I was going to sing that for you, but that would have ruined the entire sermon. But there it is, the falsehood, the lie. If it feels right, what could possibly be wrong with it? And most of us hear the word depravity. Maybe we read things like this and we're like, that's not who we are or most of our friends. But do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. See, if you ever fail to do that, it has simply been a sign of your humanity, your depravity. C.S. Lewis says something in the screw tape letters. Many of you have probably read the screw tape letters, but if you haven't, the screw tape letters is written from an older demon to a younger demon on how to tempt away people from God, and particularly how to focus on Christians and have them move away from God into other things. And in one section of that text, C.S. Lewis writes this, the words from the older demon to the younger apprentice demon, and he says this, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now, for those of you that play bridge, this is not a condemnation of your bridge playing. It's basically saying anything that distracts your full-hearted devotion to your Savior, to your Lord, then it is paving the way to destruction. And if you've never come to Christ, that will be your end. In fact, that's what the next D is in this understanding, and that is not only are they deceived and depraved, but they are doomed. And we saw that at the end of that verse. It says that they are by nature children of wrath. Now, the children of wrath means being under the judgment of God. You know, in this current age, we oftentimes find people more than willing to talk about the love of God, but to talk about the righteousness of God and the judgment of God, all of a sudden, people become mute. But here's the most important thing you can grasp in that understanding. If you don't understand the righteousness of God and your right condemnation in His judgment, then you'll never understand the depth of His love and His mercy towards you. 
the more you understand and have reflected upon that, the more you oftentimes realize how beautiful God's mercy and grace actually is. And some of you, as you have gotten older, have appreciated it more and more in your life. Now, here's the beauty of this passage. Paul has really been describing what in modern day we might call zombies. <laughs> They're the walking dead. And that is to say that their end is eventually destruction. And what they don't realize is they're living a life of decay even in the here and now. If we were left to that, we would have no hope for this life or the one to come. But in the next verse we have, in the beginning of verse 4, that phrase that says, but God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's the gospel in two words, which is where I stole my title from this text. The gospel in two words. The beauty of that, it doesn't say, but only if you, and put the impetus upon you. It says instead that God stepped into this situation, and now something has happened because God has acted, but God. Now, what did God do? We're not going to look at our condition of our life in Christ. And it says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved." And we're going to see in the working out of this that God works in us, God works for us, and in the end, God works through us. When we first part of this text, we see that God is working in us. I love His motivation here is to say that He is being rich in mercy. Now, mercy is something that is shown to someone who has no hope someone who cannot help themselves. And mercy looks upon that with compassion and moves towards them. It's not an idle, dismissed, or unengaged type of vocabulary. It is instead emotionally having mercy, compassion on those whom he sees. So when God looks at those that are deceived, those that are depraved, and those that are doomed, he is moved with compassion to do something. And it says in that mercy, the second word is that that was motivated by His love, by His love. So, you understanding God's justice, you also understand His love, that He would send His only Son to die upon a cross that we might have life eternal. He would raise Him from the dead, being the first fruits of that resurrection. Now, what's the means by which He did this? It was His grace, and it was all of His grace. In fact, if you jump down to verse 8, you see him flesh out this idea of being saved by grace. Uh, verse 6 and 7 are somewhat a parenthesis, and verse 8 he picks up, and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast." This is a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's a beautiful statement is that which we rest our faith upon. There's nothing that we can do to reform our own lives enough to have eternal life and be righteous before God. Instead, God does something, and He offers us salvation by faith in Christ. And when that happens, 
we no longer work for our salvation, but we're going to see later we work out and through our salvation. I was seeing something on YouTube or social media. I'm not sure where I saw it, but uh, it was a picture and it was a video actually of a deer. This deer had been out roaming around and apparently somebody had put something what looked like a swing from a tree and this deer with its uh, antlers had gotten tangled in that tree and it was running from side to side in panic mode. Now, we all know if that deer had never gotten out of that entangled mess, that deer, in fact, would have died. But a couple of hunters saw them. I don't know if they were hunters. They probably wouldn't. They would have shot him. Some people saw him, and they moved out to his rescue. They got the deer at least calm enough to be able to cut the ropes off of the deer's antlers, and they set that deer free. And the beauty of that deer then bounding in freedom reminded me of what God has done for us. We were tangled into something we could not untangle ourselves. And yet God came and set us free, and the result of that is joy. So we see that God works in us because He gives us life. And here He talks about life. Specifically, He is talking about eternal life because we were doomed without Christ, but now with Christ, we're going to see that we are raised in the heavenlies. He has given us life everlasting in fact, I love John 17, 3, one of my favorite passages, defines eternal life. And this is eternal life, that you would know the one true God and you would know His Son. Knowledge of God is what eternal life is. That starts today. It starts when you place your faith in Christ and you grow in your knowledge of Him, which will come into full fruition as we are with Him in eternally. But He not only works in us, He works for us. Look at verses 6 and 7. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you can just go through and circle how many times it says, in Christ or in Christ Jesus. All of these blessings that he is talking about are ours because we have faith in Christ Jesus and have been placed into union with him. And it says here that we raised up and we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He uses a Greek terminology or verb that doesn't talk just about what's going to happen in the future, but this as a settled fact of reality. Just as Christ Jesus is seated, so are we in the very presence of God. And he says eventually, in the coming ages, he's going to show us immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to those in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find myself more and more praying as the Apostle John did at the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, when he said, Lord, come quickly. Sometimes it's because of the world scene that I see. Sometimes it's because of the suffering that I see, whether it be medical or otherwise. And I long for that day when God will redeem His people in full, bring us into His presence, heal our every wound, wipe our every tear, fill us with His presence. We look forward to that day because there He will express in fullness of His kindness. 
But it doesn't stop there. It says that God also works through us. Pick that up in verse 10. He says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The term workmanship can be used in a number of different ways, but one of the most prominent ways it's used is that of a poet, a poet. And I appreciate that one commentator brought that out and said, really what we are as God's people are like God's hymn or God's poetry. See, He hasn't left us in the state we are in, but instead He has transformed us. We are His workmanship. Now, note the order. We do not work for our salvation, but we do work from our salvation. Now, why is that so important in this text as we move through the book of Ephesians? This idea of good works is so prominent because what God is wanting to do in your life is to display His goodness to all of the world. John Stott writes this in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. He says, towards the end of my time as a theological student at Ridley Hall, Cambridge, the Reverend Paul Gibson retired as principal. A portrait of him was unveiled. In expressing his thanks, he paid a well-deserved compliment to the artist. He said that in the future, he believed people looking at the picture would not ask, who is that man? But rather, who painted that portrait? See, when God looks or when people look at a redeemed life, particularly if you have lived in sin, which we all have, and sees the redemption that we have in Christ and sees the change of our life, both in its passions and in its works, then people praise our Heavenly Father. That is what it means to be in the gallery of God. He wants to place us up there to say, this is what I can do with one who places their faith in Christ Jesus. So, what begs my heart when I read this is, okay, we are His workmanship. We created in Christ Jesus. It says that He, he pre- prepared these beforehand that we should walk in them. Walking is just an analogy of living in them. And so, the question is, how do we live out the workmanship that God has done in us, that we may be part of the gallery that He is displaying to this world. Well, one, understand that God has you where you are today for a reason. Oftentimes, especially when we reach difficult times in our life, we're wanting God to take us out of that situation, move us to another context, another set of circumstances. But I believe fully in the sovereignty and providence of God that He has you there for a reason to live out His purposes in the world, in the place you're at. That may be a job you do not appreciate, but God hasn't asked you to appreciate your job. He has asked you to glorify Him in the way that you work, in the way that you treat others in that work environment. Perhaps you've faced an illness and maybe even gotten a diagnosis recently. And you ask the question, why God? And God says, now for you to know why, what it is though is your opportunity to display my grace and goodness as you're walking through this. I may and may not deliver you out of that circumstance, but you have the opportunity to shine the spotlight on my grace by the way you respond in those moments. 
So wherever you are in this moment, God has you there for a purpose, and He will use you no matter how difficult it may seem in the moment. And in the end, you will receive the full reward for that. There's another way that we think about good works in the Scriptures, and that is how do you find out, even how do you work in this world? And let me give you three ideas that have a lot to do with how you serve in the church. But it's not just how you serve in the church, but how do you help the church be the manifestation of the body of Christ in this world? That's what we do. And let me say first, you need to think about in your passions. What is it that God has made you passionate about? And I've seen people time and time again start new ministries because they have a passion for a particular calling in life. Maybe yours is to disciple younger generations. You have the opportunity to step into things like the men's and the women's ministry. You don't have to lead the whole thing, but you can invest your life into the coming generation. And perhaps that's part of your passion. Maybe God has given that to you. One of mine is teaching God's Word. I love to teach God's Word. It's part of the reason He has placed me, I believe, in the ministry that I have. Yours may be hospitality, making people feel welcome, whether it be in your home or here at the church. See, God uses all those things based upon just what your passions are that He has placed in your heart. And then secondly, your experiences. What have you experienced that might be the means by which God will use those to work out His good in this world and perhaps in other people's lives? Paul says it's another passage when he talks about his own suffering, and he says that when you suffer, you suffer those so that you may then comfort those who go through similar sufferings. So even in your suffering, the experiences that you have are oftentimes a gateway to ministry opportunities. And then finally, obviously, you're gifting. You're gifting. God has given each one of us spiritual gifts. He has given those not for your benefit, but for the benefit of the body of Christ. Now, I told my family I was not going to use family illustrations because I can usually do that when I'm in Texas and nobody can find out. But I do have one family illustration of that. I can remember my mom of a number of years ago, she was saying, I don't have any spiritual gifts, to which we all laughed because we're all looking at her and know that she's the first one to want everyone to feel welcome in her home. She's always hospitable uh, in college. So I got some college friends here. Uh, we had parties at my parents' house because they opened up their home for us to have our gatherings there. I also think of her gift of helps, and she sees a need, and she steps in, even where she's living today. She sees a need. She steps in. She wants to meet that need. She has the gifts of helps and hospitality. And yet, because those aren't upfront gifts, sometimes people don't talk about those as much. But I would suggest to you that they are more important for the display of God's grace in this world as His masterpiece than anything that I do in the pulpit. Because the people of Christ are the ones who minister to the needs and rub arms with their associates on a day-to-day basis. So my challenge to you is to move from the graveyard to the gallery. You may be here this morning and you have never taken that step of faith. You have never trusted Christ as your Savior. Let this be the day. Let this Thanksgiving and Christmas season be the time when you put the stake in the ground. Uh, Much as Ronan did earlier today, you said, I am choosing to place my faith in Christ. And just see if God doesn't renew you and create a masterpiece, even if you think your life is beyond that. God is in the process 
of making beautiful things out of broken pieces. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, but you don't really know what that means. You, you, you've made that confession of faith, but what does that mean in my daily life? I want to suggest to you what it means in your daily life is that you allow God to work through you as you cling strongly to the positional truths that we've studied in this passage. You know, there's a story of Michelangelo, and a lot of stories of Michelangelo, I'm never really sure if they're true. I go and research them um, to see if they're true and find many that are and some that aren't. One of them, though, is a kind of a fascinating story in that uh, one of the developers of the miners of granite had sent a block of granite uh, to, I don't know if it was Paris or to the city that he was in, Florence maybe, and, and he sent it there for the sculptors to use, but sculptor after sculptor looked at it and it had a crack in it, and sculptor after sculptor said, no, it's a flawed piece of granite, I will not use it. Then Michelangelo gets a hold of it, and he creates out of it a beautiful angel. And he said two things, these I do know that he said. One of them was this, I saw an angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. Then another statement he makes is, every block of granite has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Here's what's beautiful. No matter what lump of granite we are, God is the master sculptor, and He's not trying to figure out how to get that out of you. He knows the design He has for you. And part of what He's doing in this life is chipping away the pieces so that you may be in the display of God's gallery. Let us pray. Father God, Your Word is beyond human nature in being able to write or understand. But we thank You that You have given us Your Word for its practical purposes of our lives, but also to direct us towards Your truth, towards Your glory, towards Your grace, towards Your Son. And Father, we pray that the words that we have studied this morning will resonate in our hearts this week as we seek to display Your grace to the world in which we live. May it all be done for Your glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen.